0: Welcome to another uctv.tv podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: CARTA is a center for advanced research and training in anthropogeny, and anthropogeny is a term used for the investigation into the origin of humans. CARTA is has a particular mission that is that we use all rational And ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. So I will turn this now over to Dr. James Moore, who is the organizer of this symposium on culture as a phenomenon across various animal species.
2: Well, welcome to this uh, symposium on human and non-human cultures. In a review of the, the concept of culture in 1952, uh, Krober and Klocken came up with 162 different definitions of culture. Uh, I imagine that in the last 50-plus years, we've probably come up with a few more rather than uh, reduce the number. Today... Uh, I think we're going to use a fairly, well, we'll use a number of definitions, I'm sure, but fairly broad ones in order to illuminate the functions of this uh, nebulous concept and then in particular to see what sets us apart from uh, our, our culture apart from the behaviors that are apparently culture-like in non-humans. Uh, I want to set the scene for this with uh, a little episode in the study of uh, the evolution of of human uniqueness, and that has to do with uh, vervet monkey uh, alarm calls.
3: Apart from man, no other animal in the wild has been shown to use so many different word-like alarm calls. call that means danger from the air. And the vervets run into the denser branches where the eagle won't pursue them for fear of damaging its wings. From the safety of the thorny branches, the vervets scream furiously. And one is even brave enough to launch a lightning attack. Monkeys are not the only ones to be fearful of the eagle. So are small birds, such as the superb starling. Vervets understand the starling's vocabulary. The bird shrieks a warning. Shh! Danger on the ground. And the monkeys repeat it using their own term. And everyone runs for it. So, vervets, with such a wide vocabulary of alarm calls, show that sound can carry a great deal of vital information.
2: This wide variety, mind you, is three different alarm calls, and uh, for that, vervet monkeys made it into most of the textbooks, Uh, if you've had biological anthropology, anthropology, you've had something like this where it talks about the language capacities of humans, and then, well, of course, it all starts with vervet monkeys. Um, a few years after this, the, the vervet work was published in Science in 1980, and animal behavior in 1993. We had um, an avian uh, example. <laughs> Oddly, this paper has not made it into the textbooks. <laughs> And is not as widely known uh, Maybe because they only have Two different uh, predator alarm calls Rather than three The message here Is that if we're trying to understand The human phenomenon It's a mistake to stop At our closest relatives um, Because if we do that We miss out on behaviors That are at least Functionally similar In other taxa That can help us by looking at that functional similarity, also then pay attention to the mechanism. Is the chicken alarm call learned in the same way that a vervet alarm call is learned? Is it shaped uh, in the same fashion? Uh, the ontogeny of the uh, uh, call during development and also the phylogenetic history, which is of interest to us. So by, uh, by looking across a wider variety of uh, species. I hope to to, um, encourage uh, the approach to looking at all four of these levels of explanation, these types of explanation, to better understand what is it that really makes ours uh, quite different.
0: The aim of my talk is to explore issues in the differences differences between human and animal culture, primarily by using human cultural universals as common denominators of humans. Let me point out at the beginning that when I agreed to give this talk, I assumed that culture is culture and that humans are not alone in having it, although they have a lot more of it than any other animal. Like, I am sure, the vast majority of cultural anthropologists, I have been more concerned with the content of culture than with the most basic processes or mechanisms by which individual organisms acquire and transmit culture. Animal behaviorists, by contrast, have necessarily focused on the basics as a means of distinguishing cultural behaviors from the remainder of the behaviors their subject species engage in. The concept of culture, which, which is at the core of anthropology, was defined very broadly at the 19th century beginnings of academic anthropology as follows. That complex whole, which includes knowledge, belief, art, law, morals, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. Attempts to refine a more abstract and agreed upon definition of culture from then onward have failed. But however it is defined, it is agreed that culture is passed on from generation to generation in a manner that involves learning rather than specific genetic programming. And besides being transmitted from generation to generation, culture may also be transmitted horizontally between individuals and groups. Examples of culture are tools and tool making, kinship, terminologies, dance, divination, magic, trade, and very much more which in each case may take distinct forms among peoples who are genetically indistinguishable. Culture is divisible into traits, that is, single items, and complexes, which are more or less integrated or institutionalized collections of traits. Culture typically is thought of as though it were attached to or identified with particular groups or societies or peoples. The transmission vertically between generations and horizontally from individuals to individuals through learning is called social learning. And there is substantial agreement that social learning is a necessary condition for culture. If social learning is also considered a sufficient condition for culture, then many species besides humans have culture. And this has been known for decades. Recent research by animal behaviorists including students of non-human primates, has substantially increased our knowledge of non-human culture and the conditions that both underlie and result from it. However, this research has very much raised the issue of whether social learning is really all there is to culture, with with the only remaining comparative issue being one of the degree to which such learning takes place, or, alternatively, whether there are some defining features of human culture that make it fundamentally distinct from animal culture. On the one hand, this is a semantic problem, how to define culture. But it is also a serious scientific matter. If chimpanzees, for example, share the crucial mental ingredients for culture with humans, it would be reasonable to hypothesize that chimpanzee and human culture are homologous, meaning that each species capacity for culture traces to their common ancestry. If, however, human culture is something distinct, then such similarities as there are between chimpanzee and human cultures make them analogous but independent developments. Some scholars argue that fundamental features of human culture are far more recent than the split between chimpanzees and humans. If that is correct, animal and human culture are are not just two points along a single line of cultural development. To emphasize the difference between human culture and animal culture, some scholars say that animals have traditions but not culture. Others use such terms as protoculture for animals, reserving culture for humans. Some scholars, drawing attention to a distinction of process and content, wonder whether the same basic psychological processes underlie social learning in both humans and other primates. I will return to the issue of underlying psychological processes later. Getting back to definitions, a cultural universal is a cultural trait or complex that is found in all or nearly all human societies, though not necessarily in all individuals in every society. Thus, cooking is found in all societies, but not every individual cooks, not even every normal adult. Some form of leadership is found in all societies, though not all all individuals are leaders. Given the apparently strong tendencies for culture to vary considerably from one society to another, anthropologists have sometimes thought that cultural traits or complexes that are the same in all cultures throughout the world were very unlikely to exist. However, they do exist, and we can think of them as providing a sort of baseline for the comparison of human culture with that of the other primates or of other animals in general. While the antiquity of most cultural universals is not known, the age area hypothesis that anthropologists employ for tentative dating of cultural items suggests that cultural universals must have been around for a very long time. The age area hypothesis is that the wider the distribution of a cultural trait or complex, the older it is. Given that cultural universals have the widest possible distribution, they should also have the greatest antiquity. What are the major differences? One of the most dramatic and frequently cited is quantitative, the volume and complexity of human culture. That volume and complexity, even in the simplest societies, should probably be seen as an order of magnitude greater than in any primate society, or in any non-human primate species as a whole. This can be illustrated by one of the principal topics in the study of animal culture, tool use. Quite a number of species, and not only primates, use tools, but human tool use is distinctive in the universally large number of tools they use, the permanence of their tools, their use of tools to make tools, and the universality of particular kinds of tools. Containers, pounders, cutters, the spear, and some sort of string-like material for interweaving or tying. A large part of the complexity of human culture flows from another of the most dramatic and frequently cited differences, human speech. Each actual language is transmitted culturally from individuals to individuals, group to group. A great many further differences between humans and other primates consist primarily of linguistic phenomena so that many of the human cultural universals are language-dependent, often consisting of labels or classificatory sets of labels. But in many cases, these pose serious problems of whether in substance they are really all that different. For example, numeracy is considered a human cultural universal, yet the simplest forms of human numeracy encode number systems as simple as one, few, and many. There is experimental and other evidence to indicate that some animal species are also able to grasp and act upon a sense of quantification that is approximately the same, even though they do not have a verbal number system. There are many other language-dependent cultural universals that show marked cultural differences from society to society, but that also might very well be a putting of names on matters that other species are cognitive of, such as classification of plants and animals, or the recognition of emotional states. In spite of the ongoing problem of determining the real difference in such cases, no one doubts the extraordinary impact of language on the growth and spread of human culture. There's good reason to assume that language allowed for a considerable increase in the efficiency of cultural transfer. Greater efficiency of transfer may account for much of what has been called the ratchet effect in human culture, its capacity for transforming cultural traits or building one trait on another to achieve more variation and or complexity through time. The ratchet effect is either absent or very limited in such culture as has been observed in other species. Two of the non-linguistic human cultural universals of very great impact are the use of fire and the specific use of fire to cook food. Fire allowed illumination in the dark, protection from predators, movement into colder colder climates, and the facilitation of tool making. Cooked foods are much more digestible than uncooked, allowing a more easily obtained and richer diet. In combination, fire and cooking surely loom large in the explanation of the very different demographics of humans and other primates. Humans spread throughout the world, which allowed, if not required, varying cultural adaptations, and humans achieved population densities that brought differing peoples into the sorts of contacts that would, make, that would facilitate lateral cultural transmission. It is that context of wide dispersal, but with potential for direct and indirect contact between populations, that allowed trade to spring up between human groups. Trade, as opposed to one-on-one exchanges that go no further, is another of the human cultural universals that sets them apart from other animals. Trade facilitates cultural exchange. Thus, by altering the demographics of humans, fire and cooking have also contributed substantially to a heightened efficiency of cultural transmission and very possibly to cultural innovation. In some ways, more radical in their implications for distinguishing between cultural development among humans and non-human primates are two specific processes of cultural transmission that humans may uniquely employ. One is that the basic learning systems of humans and other primates suggest a difference of emulation versus imitation. In emulation, one individual does something and another individual, focusing on the result then engages in trial and error learning to achieve the same result. In the case of imitation, the second individual focuses on how the, in, the first individual achieved the desired result and then tries to duplicate the appropriate actions to get the result. Children, human children, seem much more inclined to focus on the actions than other species do. There is some debate as to whether any non-human primate species regularly engages in imitation. Again, the difference suggests greater efficiency of cultural transmission among humans. In this case, however, the difference is traced to a psychological rather than cultural factor, that is, to a difference in the way the mind works. Let me note an important, apparently cultural difference that is closely related to imitation, and that is deliberate instruction or teaching. Deliberate instruction is universal in human societies, but apparently absent among the other primates. In this case, yet again, efficiency of cultural transfer is surely the result. The second difference that may be psychological rather than cultural is that humans, even children, when they imitate or teach, are likely to stress that there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. This insistence on a sort of moralization of procedure, a sort of ritualizing of everyday activities, is taken by some scholars to be a uniquely human to be uniquely human and designed to mark one group from another, that is to be an aspect of ethnocentrism. This moralized or normative cultural marking of our way versus the way of others has no obvious counterpart in other primates, believes a strong mark on human cultures. Moralizing the way of doing things seems directly related to another human universal, the distinction between nature and culture. Everywhere, humans see a sharp distinction between themselves and the animal world, even though they may claim a special relationship to or revere certain animals. Animals in general are seen by humans to lack the morality that governs our world. Now, in summary, some human cultural universals, which we can presume to be of considerable antiquity, have enhanced the ease of transmission of culture among humans. If we imagine cultural development as a sort of race, humans have a supercharged engine for transmitting culture. Narrative and intentional instruction directly enhance transmission of culture. Fire and cooking do it indirectly by altering the demographics of humans. To give another sports analogy, fire and cooking put more players on the field, on the human side. The evolution of human speech and the many languages that flowed from it is also... Uh, also greatly enhance the transmission of human culture. Its specific mode of learning, imitation as opposed to emulation, presumably also enhances transmission of culture. These enhancements, to the speed or ease of cultural transmission among humans, go a long way to explain why the ratchet effect is so apparent in human culture as a whole. While not enhancing cultural speed, and maybe even slowing it down some, The moralization of human culture put a stamp on it that apparently is not shared with other primates, but that accounts for many of the peculiarities of human culture. Moreover, that same moralization is closely connected to the universal distinction between nature and culture, the belief that human beings are not like other animals, or at least not like our kind of human beings. Thank you.
4: back to the 70s, the early 70s in fact, when I was, uh, I just finished my thesis and I was working in Paris and got involved with a group called the Centre Royaumont pour une science de l'homme, the Royaumont Centre for a Science of Man, uh, which was started by Jacques Monod, uh, François Jacob, Lévi-Strauss, and a man named Edgar Morin, who is less known, I think, uh, on this side of the ocean. In this period People like Jacob and Mano, who disagreed very strongly about the nature of living things. Uh, I'm referring here to Jacob's book, *The Logic of the Living*, uh, which is a translation of a book that came out in the 70s, uh, and which makes a case that I think is very important for people doing social sciences for many reasons. I say this because in those days there were fights, there were discussions, but we all went out to eat together. And uh, in the disagreements, there was a, common, a sense of, of common purpose. By the time the 80s came around, that had dried up. Uh, there was a divergence. There was, you could say, the cultural turn in the social sciences. Uh, where I worked to use the word biology was very often labeled as racism. Very strange idea. When you think of the history of anthropology, especially the work of Boaz. Uh, it was uh, there was less and less communication, and culture became a cultural science of its own, using culture as the be-all and end-all of everything, and looking down upon the natural sciences. And the natural sciences developed in their direction, and did I, I imagine the same? This is academic ethnicity, tribalism which anthropologists know all about, uh, which they should know all about, at least. Uh, it's one of those common phenomena in the real world today, but it it's, has certainly made its mark on academia. Um, and it's, a, seri- it's a, a very serious problem. It should be f- overcome. Uh, I feel that this kind of venue is the place in which it can, can be done, but I think it could be done on a much broader scale in the sense that we are all part of the same physical universe uh, and this is jacob's point his concept of the integron was a way of trying to deal with the hierarchy the hierarchy of organization in nature which ended to some extent with culture and what was the integron for him it was what made chemistry possible what made in other words you have uh, subatomic uh, processes you have atomic processes you have you have uh, chemical processes all of these can be reduced to the level beneath, but it's a real pain in the ass, and it's not worth it and not only that, there are initial conditions or you could say conditions of emergence, which determine why you can have chemical equations that don't have to rely on lower level forms of organization even though this is all, uh, it goes back and forth Um, and it also is a statement about development uh, of of the physical world It also implies that the cultural world is part of the physical world, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, I I think it's a very important point. It can be discussed as well, but uh, I don't believe that there's any place called spirituality which is not rooted in something or other uh, in the physical world. Um, And this, I think, is another way of understanding all of this in terms of an attempt to unify, ultimately, uh, the kinds of studies that the natural sciences and the social sciences do. It's not necessary to keep them completely separate. This would mean that, uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, the, the organizational aspects of the world that we are looking at, that we can understand uh, culture, and I, as a social scientist, would do it in this sense, in terms of what it is. That is the properties of the emergent structures which lead to them, uh, so now i 'm going to talk a little bit about culture, but in this framework all the time that culture ultimately is reducible to physics, but it would be a waste of time. Culture as emergent structure culture we began the discussion today with culture as a uh, one hundred and sixty de- definitions, and there are some new ones around there has been a tendency historically for the oh. cultural concept to change radically in this century from one in which it was simply everything that could be learned, socially learned, you could say, from technology onward, upward, and so on and so forth, to a notion of culture as text, as paradigm, as code. And it's a very, you say, cultural determinist approach that says that. What organizes our world? It is the cultural structures that pre, predate it, that exist there uh, first, you could say. In the same sense that genetic determinists would say that genetic, you have a gene, you have a, a genetic base, a substrate, which determines ultimately what kind of phenotypes you're going to get. Uh, all of this, I think, is arguable uh, to some extent, but I think there are lots of debates about it, and I, I would argue against it, following Waddington. Um, that the genetic structure can be understood as simply another physical uh, aspect of an epigenetic process and not a code that tells you how to build phenotypes. In this sense, one could say that um, the notion of, of culture as um, from a point of view of emergent structure uh, would return to some extent to the notion of learning but would also look at it as social interaction. And at the bottom level, one could understand this in terms of worlds of experienced interaction in which uh, intentionality plays a very important part. So the three aspects that are crucial to this are that at this bottom level, the substrate of culture, it is implicit, it is immediate, in terms of its understanding, and it is intentional. And this implies that uh, artifacts are always the results of something else, which is also quite specific. Culture is also simply specificity. It's simply difference. So when people talk about generic culture or they talk about the capacity of a culture, what is that capacity? It's the capacity to do the same thing differently. It's the capacity for... Alterity, which means that culture is is got to be brought down to earth and understood in its its actual simplicity. Uh, When we talk about cultural systems, if there or if there are such systems, that's something different. But culture itself is simply that, which means that all traditions are cultural, insofar as there is that learned component in them. If there's a behavioral base, out of which these things grow. The second level of culture, which is the one that anthropologists usually talk about, is the level that you, where you have rules, you have ideas, you have representations, you have the elaboration of this more foundational or substrate of, of uh, interactive behavior with its, all of its intentionalities. Um, which is where, I assume, you would find some of the most important universals. So... Having tools is not enough. It's how to put them together, which means that no concept of culture can work without a concept of practice. The things aren't there unless you do them. And the doing them is a structured doing, and it is that structure which I think is foundational for getting beyond a notion of culture as a thing which is fixed and never changes, for example. Or if it does change, it's simply replaced by some other thing, some other fixed Uh, set of properties. Uh, This is what uh, uh, Francois Jacob has to offer to uh, Levi-Strauss in a certain sense and it has to do with a great misunderstanding about that great structuralist. Structure for Levi-Strauss is simply the properties of social process and they are structured Um, and it can be specified, it can be modeled and it has nothing to do with Uh, you could say what people usually call organization. So, for example, there's something called cross-cousin marriage, which is usually presented as a model. Uh, People marry their mother's brother's daughter, for example. That's called matrilateral cross-cousin marriage. But what is it really all about? It's very simple. And you don't need complex categories in order to do it. It means that you a group of people with an authority structure led usually by a man and I can't explain all that um, I'll take that for forgiven. Uh, male authority chooses to have an alliance with another group over there and part of that alliance is marriage the transfer of women from that group to my group and uh, this is repeated over time it is reproduced The fact that it is reproduced creates matrilateral cross-cousin marriage by itself. Nothing else is needed. All you do is identify what people are doing with words, and you get matrilateral cross-cousin marriage. And, of course, if the system is based on language, uh, then, of course, it's very easy to understand it. This uh, transfer, in other words, is... Something which is behavioral, it is experienced, of course, it is, uh, it is uh, practiced, and it has to be practiced for it to exist at all. And then it is elaborated upon. It is elaborated with language, categories of use, rules, and so on and so forth. So that when you go to some people and ask them, what do you do? Well, we marry our mother's brother's daughter. But that's not a necessary explanation of what they're doing. It is simply, as levi says, an elaboration upon the exchange relationship between groups with male authority. Uh, in that sense, you could say that there is a, a bottom level to all of this which be- becomes cultural or culturalized in its operation. And it is also part of a process of socialization. And that is where you could say the elaboration of culture becomes instrumental in the reproduction of a social order. And this is very much uh, a question of how to reproduce an, a social order. Socialization leads to the explicit use and formulation of norms and categories and so on and so forth uh, which accounts for how these systems can reproduce. Uh, another example, even simpler, is one in which Uh, Captain Cook comes to Hawaii many, many years ago, two centuries ago, and he, uh, on the boat, Hawaiians come out with lots of food, and they say, uh, he thinks to them, come and take. Come down and take our food, bring it up. And then after he's done that, and they take the food up, they go up on the boat and they start to take stuff. And he shoots them, because they're stealing misunderstanding if one looks at uh, that and then looks at other aspects of Hawaiian society even today uh, I'll give you some other examples we go to a party uh, with a friend of ours and he's an old man, a senior person after 10 minutes at the party which is an enormous great banquet he says let's go and so he takes a a plastic bag because this is modern Hawaii and he fills up the bag with food Lots of food. And he says, you do that too. And then we all go home. That's it. Um, as I walk down the street in the village of Miloli'i in southern, uh, the south coast of, of uh, Kona in Hawaii, people say to me, come and eat. Come and take. The kids come to our house and they say, I like that. I like take that. And they do it. I can do the same thing. Reciprocal taking. Never heard of it before in anthropology. You're supposed to give. No, they don't give. They take. But they do it in a reciprocal fashion, but it's not measured and it's never supposed to be measured. They adopt, and today they adopt like crazy. And it's always grandparents adopting their grandchildren. And how do they how do they say? They say I like take care I like take care, and they go to the hospital when their daughter is giving birth, and they leave a bag of clothes. And that means, that one is mine. No talk, no nothing. No culture, no elaboration. Important. And if the, the, the poor daughter doesn't want to, and she even doesn't want to do it with love, with aloha, then everybody gets sick, and the, ch- the child will die. Sorcery magic Uh, it's all there, never discussed when people go and ask Hawaiians for the norms and many anthropologists work at that level, they say well why do you do it, why do you adopt well because it's good it's good for the grandparents, it's good to to teach the kids the language and to teach them the traditions and all the rest of it but if you look at the actual practices by doing let's say simple life history you get Shakespeare you get people that hate each other in the end who don't talk to each other for years and years, parents that accuse uh, children that accuse their parents of giving them away, and so on and so forth. Full of conflict. All of this is specific. Uh, it could be reproduced in another context, uh, but it is a, a specific way of, of going about the world, which in this particular case is undercognized, and we know nothing about it unless we watch it. You would never find the whole thing out unless you actually saw it happening. This is also a very important aspect of culture as the, the distinctive way in which people live in ordered situations. You could say cultural worlds. There's a further level of emergent structure. And the final one, which I'm going to say a little bit about, is that uh, at this very highest level, there is what you could call the non-intentional properties of social life. Uh, I studied this very early in my, in my career, but other people have done it. Uh, the simple example is that uh, in the 1930s, people went to study Upper Burma and Upper Burmese societies, and they found two kinds of societies among a larger group called the Kachin. Some were egalitarian, and they called them the Kumlaus, and some were uh, hierarchical, and they called them the Kumsas. And it was assumed that there were two different societies. And they compared them, and they said there were lots of similarities, but there are differences. Some are hierarchical, and others egalitarian. And then Edmund Leach comes along, uh, Britain's, uh, the British anthropologist, and discovers that they're historically connected in a cycle of expansion and contraction. Okay. Uh, the aspect of this, this, which is important and crucial, I think, is that this cycle of expansion and collapse, you could say, which is typical of the society and many other societies in the anthropological and archaeological records, is one in which, after the collapse, people disperse, they go back into the forest among the Kachin, and what do they do? The same thing, all over again. Because the level of cultural organization does not include knowledge or discourse or reflexivity about the consequences of that action in the long run. This has been the history of the world. So there's a, an aspect of culture which I, I would think that should be uh, taken up as very important, which Freud would have called the repetition compulsion. That we, are, we have a very destructive kind of system, and we've had it probably since the very beginning. It's just that the bigger it gets, the worse it gets. We tend to not produce cultures ...and social organizations which are adapted in the long run to their conditions of existence. On the contrary, lower level strategies and intentionalities dominate uh, the way the rest of it works. But anybody who looks at business cycles or Kondratiev cycles or long-term economic processes... ...will see very easily that people tend to do the same thing all the time. But nobody ever practices a business cycle... There's no culture for the business cycle. There's no code for it. People can write about it, but there's nothing at the level of intentionality and action which includes it. People make money. That's enough. You can reduce it to a very small number of necessary activities, but the consequences are, in fact, the business cycles and much worse events like the one we have right now, uh, which is an expanded form of that particular process. Uh, so, to end very quickly, um, I, I think that uh, not only is it important to, to broaden uh, our understanding of the world by having uh, multidisciplinary meetings like this, I think that an awful lot of what we can learn uh, is reinforced by this kind of a situation. Because if we've got business cycles... Where did 90% of all the species that have ever inhabited the Earth go? They're not around anymore. So life has been a success, but not species. Uh, One could look at it in those terms and say, what did they do wrong? And I think that's an important way of trying to link, I think, the the different uh, social and natural sciences together. Thank you.
1: take it as a given that culture in human communities is a socially learned and socially created system of categories, values and rules through which sets of people live their lives. I'm also going to take it for granted that these categories, values and rules are more or less conventional and normative. People feel the categories, values and rules to be right and they have that feeling as part of their social relations with other people. In this sense I don't consider there to be a strong separation between the processes of society or social relating and the processes of culture. These are one and the same. In cultural anthropology for the last several decades, there has been a lot of doubt cast on the idea that culture exists as a system. We have seen come to the fore a whole variety of intensely nominalist convictions to the effect that culture is a process, not a thing or a unit, that cultural systems are contradictory and fragmented that cultures are heterogeneous and partial rather than homogeneous and socially shared, and so we should just stop talking about culture altogether. I think all those first things are true, but that it's still necessary to speak of there being systems or forms of cultural order, and in fact that to give an actual account of process, contradiction, or heterogeneity is necessarily to be giving an account of something that is systematic. It's just to be giving a better account of it. So taking the existence of culture as normative system for granted, What I will talk about today is my sense that reflexivity about culture is integral to cultural order and probably a crucial site of where cultural order happens, a crucial site of how culture comes into existence on a day to day or decade to decade basis, and a crucial site of how culture has the shape that it does. What I mean by cultural reflexivity in human cultures is something very general and very widespread. I mean any process of making cultural and social statements about cultural and social convention. If we want to go in a jargony direction here, we could speak in terms of meta-culture, meta-representation, or meta-communication to get at this idea. The basic notion I'll be exploring is something like the following. Whenever there is a human norm or a convention, not only is that norm something that people enact and live out or live through, but also the norm or convention is something that people live toward. They can make the norm or convention itself a focus of reflection and and action, and they can bounce off of it or twist it, creating a different norm that stands relational to the first norm as both dependent on it and different from it. So this is a vision of culture as a kind of constant dialectic or cycle of norm and twist on the norm. Here's another example of cultural reflexivity. Satire and parody are, by definition, genres of cultural activity that take existing cultural conventions and twist them. They take conventions by which other messages are usually conveyed and make those conventions themselves not the vehicle but the message, here a focus of mockery. This article is a send up of a whole suite of our society's rules, categories, and values. Like other Onion articles, this one mimics the genre conventions of straight written news reports. Onion humor, like tongue twisters and like any stable genre or subgenre of satire, has itself emerged as a conventional kind of activity. It exists as a body of norms. The idea I want to put forth here is that culture at large is organized a bit like a play on words or like a satirical newspaper story. Culture consists in a vast network of links between normal categories, values, and rules and other normal or quickly becoming normal categories, values, and rules that are reflexively twists on the first ones. In the very general terms I've defined it here, cultural reflexivity is something that is everywhere in our world. Ethnic tourism, cultural anthropology, and the other social sciences, pretty much the entirety of the arts, and mundane rituals of reading a regular newspaper in the morning or keeping up with a fashion of dress or music would all be instances. Indeed the idea that culture and society exists reflexively might not be all that foreign to this audience because in fact the dominant folk ideology of society and culture in the West and especially in the US is that people exist naturally as individuals first and then they decide what they're going to, that they're, the way they're going to have a society, a culture and a political order and they make one. Individuals are a given and the social order is made how we choose to through the deliberative processes of our public sphere and through our choices as private individuals. But I actually don't think that the kind of network of cultural reflexivity that I'm talking about is exactly the same thing as choice over deliberation or over propositional statement of actual conventions. People who are great at saying tongue twisters or making puns don't need to deliberate on and spell out the conventions of their language for the wordplay to be pleasurable or make people groan, just as overtly spelling out the norms that an Onion article parodies isn't necessary to feel the point of the article and may even make the point less powerfully felt. I also don't think there's a great divide here on this quality of reflexivity between modern and non-modern cultures. So to illustrate a bit further the sorts of things I have in mind by reflexivity, I want to jump to a very different human context, namely the culture of Korowai people of West Papua Indonesia, where I've done my own main cultural anthropological research. Korowai are a population of about 4,000 people who live dispersed uh, out across 500 square miles of lowland forest just south of New Guinea's central mountain chain. They make their livelihoods by planting banana gardens, by tending and processing sago palms, and by fishing and a certain amount of hunting. Over the last 20 years, they've become internationally famous through about 20 television shows that have been made about them and a vast number of magazine and newspaper articles in which they're portrayed as a perfect fit to the metropolitan Western stereotype of a tribal society. They are also famous in particular for their tree houses. I'm going to begin with a humorous and again in some ways trivial example, namely a popular way that Korowai address each other in speech that is a bit like our own practice of nicknaming or pet naming. Here though the expression is used reciprocally between two people and it is based on an experience of the two of them having once had a common experience that set them apart as a mutually identified pair. The most common pattern is for a pair of people to call each other throughout their lives by the name of some small snack they once shared together. Some examples are at the top. But other patterns are for people to call each other by a term referring back to an event of deviant eating or some other mildly transgressive experience of bodily transgression. Korowai refer to these special person reference partnerships by saying that two people, quote, avoid each other. This is in reference to the rule that a pair who enter into one of the partnerships is supposed to avoid ever saying each other's names. Instead of using names, they call each other by the special term prefixed by a possessive pronoun. They, call it, they each call the other my breadfruit nut, and so forth. There are several different ways that this person reference practice is like a tongue twister or an article in the onion. Several different ways the practice is reflexively relational to other core conventions and norms. I'll quickly just mention three. First, the practice is a twist on personal names as another conventional system of how individual humans can be represented in language. One way the avoidance partnerships are related to names is they cross them out, so to speak. Partners make reference to the system of people having names and comment on that system in a negative act of agreeing not to use the names even though they exist. The partnerships are a way of saying the conventions of names aren't so good, much as the onion article is a way of saying the conventions of capitalism aren't so good, or the conventions of reading the New York the conventions of reading the New York New York Times aren't so good. But at the same time, there's a prominent way that the partnerships resemble names. This is the fact that the partnership terms are idiosyncratic to a particular pair of persons, and their use of the term goes back to a history of the pair taking up that term together as their common designation for each other. Just as a personal name is idiosyncratic to a single individual, and the use of that name for the person goes back to a history of the person being given that name early in his or her life. Here the partnership terms might be thought to say, the conventions of names would be great if two people could share one and be linked together by it. At the very same time, the partnerships are a twist on kinship terms. Words like mother, son, uncle, niece, grandma and so forth are the dominant ways by which Korwai refer to each other in speech. They ubiquitously use these words to refer to even people they don't know very well and aren't closely related to. Use of kinship terms is so much more common than use of names, for example, that it is quite common even for a speaker not to know or remember the personal name of a fairly close relative. There is no sense that failure to remember someone else's name is an insult as in our own culture. Now, one of the distinctive char- characteristics of a kinship term is that while it refers to one person, that referential meaning is established relationally to the identity of another person. And uncle or grandma is somebody's uncle or grandma. So in core wife speech, for example, kinship terms generally are spoken with possessive pronouns attached to them. People are constantly addressing each other as my uncle and so forth. Certain of these terms are usually used reciprocally between two speakers, much as in our own speech community, cousin is a reciprocal kinship term and sister is a reciprocal kinship term between women. What I'm leading up to here is that the special personal reference partnerships I described a bit ago are themselves quasi-kinship terms. Two people speak reciprocally of each other as my falling down, and one person is a falling down only in relation to the other person in the pair, not in general and not in relation to other people in the society. The whole genre of person reference is a hybrid between personal names and kinship terms. Naming and kinship term usage exist as two different systems of communicative norms which contrast with each other in certain ways and to this field of already heterogeneous norms, Korowai add a further twist creating a complicated third system that they find pleasurable. A further cultural system that these person reference partnerships are probably relational to is interactional avoidance between married men and their wife's relatives. This exists as an independent set of norms in the society. In-laws are supposed to avoid each other's names, and mother-in-law, son-in-law pairs avoid seeing each other, touching each other, or sharing food. This in-law avoidance is serious business and hard work, and carrying it out carefully helps keep constantly in view the broader moral relation that exists between a man and his wife's relatives, a relation of intrusion, obligation, and intense accommodation. But in another context of their lives, namely the special person-reference partnerships that I've talked about, Corway can also make avoidance into a bit of a pleasurable joke. The person-reference partnerships are a little parody of the society's own conventions of avoidance, a parody that doesn't directly have anything to do with in-law relationships. Indirectly, though, the parody makes light of the tenseness of those relations while also reflecting on the positive power of formal avoidance in making people related to each other. The other example of Korowai cultural reflexivity I'll sketch briefly today is feasting. Korowai live far apart across the landscape because they're committed to political values of not being bossed around by other people. The residential dispersion is organized around a system of land ownership in which the members of a small named clan together own a square mile of land, live in different corners of that land and steward its resources. They travel around to visit and cooperate with relatives on other parts of the landscape and are visited regularly by those people in turn, but they are generally most at home on their own land. Houses only last a year or so, and people often maintain two or more houses at once. So the temporality of people's lives together is very much lived as a highly mobile process of orbiting from one house to another across the landscape. About every five years, The members of a clan build houses together in one place, though, and they call in help from their closest relatives elsewhere and set in motion a two- or three-month process of decimating their sago palm holdings to produce a huge quantity of beetle larvae and sago starch to feed to a thousand or so people from elsewhere across the landscape who will converge on their clan land on a specific day at the end of the labors. Most of these people come in large performance processions that are organized around a specific promised gift of food from one of the feast owners to a person from elsewhere on the land. While we speak in English of an event like this as a feast, Korowai most frequently talk about it by speaking of a gil, or feast building. To hold a feast is to, quote, build a feast building. To Korowai, the specific long ground-level dwelling that is built in the middle of the overall feast clearing is the physical part that stands for the whole event. These feast events are reflexive twists on many other essential norms of Korowai life all at once. Most obviously, the event is a twist on the normal conventions of dispersed living in high houses and the political values of autonomy that other residential pattern enacts. Instead of staying apart as they normally do, feast owners live together in one place and coordinate their labor on an enormous scale. This is politically a very charged and difficult thing to do. Feast owners often find it stressful to live together so much under each other's noses for such a long period and to cooperate so intensely in the exertions of feast labor. Since people are averse to being bossed around by others and do not recognize or appoint formal political leaders, One of the biggest ways that feast owners manage to coordinate their labor is by steadily reciting to each other the agreed upon sequence of about 30 different main steps in feast production. Reflexively talking about the appropriate way to put on a feast is one of the main methods by which people actually manage to carry out a feast. In this way, feast events are partly a reflection on broader questions and values about how people are to have a coordinated life in time, how they conventionally approach time as a medium of social connection or disconnection with their clanmates, questions and values that are in play at all times in life, but that are focused on an intensified way through feasts. Similar relations of reflexivity also exist between a feast event and the wider geographic landscape. The events of people traveling from different places they belong across the landscape to the land of a single clan who receives them as guests is an enactment of and a special twist on the institutions of clan ownership of land and the institutions of dispersed living across hundreds of square miles of forests. The difficulties and pleasures of this huge coordinated event of hospitality are an intensified version of the more mundane rhythms of much smaller sets of people visiting each other's houses and lands on a day-to-day basis in non-feast times of life. As just one kind of indication of what I mean here, I'll mention a couple of points about the ways the architecture of feast buildings are linked to the society's wider geography. The Korowai lands lie mainly between two large rivers that flow in a west-southwest direction. For talking about space, Corwhite pervasively used stream-based terms, meaning upstream and downstream, rather than geocentric terms like the English compass directions or body-centered terms like left and right. Thus, people constantly talk about others as being located upstream or downstream or being an upstream person or a downstream person. This overall schema for talking about social space gets represented in how people use their voices and move their bodies when they travel to a feast. There are two main named genres of performance procession, and which type of given network of people perform depends on whether they are traveling downstream or upstream to get to the feast site. In a similar way, a feast building, diagrammed here on the right, is a bit of a picture of the wider landscape and people's connections across its distances. Not only is the building big and on the ground, making it inherently more permeable and welcoming of people across the land, but it is specifically long and skinny in the manner of a stream. People build it on a broadly upstream-downstream orientation, and each of its gable ends is referred to respectively as the upstream inlet and downstream outlet. A major activity that takes place in the feast building is coordinated marching and singing up and down its length. This activity, I would suggest, is a kind of reflexive picture in vivid and concrete sensory form of the larger and more diffuse situation of people living dispersed across the upstream-downstream landscape and steadily visiting each other across it. As I presented it here, the overall observation that cultural reflexivity is an integral aspect of the organization of human cultures is an exceedingly general idea. My own view, though, is that this central aspect of how culture works tends to be left out of our common sense definitions of culture as socially maintained and socially created conventions. It's also my view that the intensity of the kinds of reflexive links between cultural elements that I've been sketching here is vastly underestimated and underdocumented in cultural anthropologists' past and present ethnographic work. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.